1: Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
2: Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Ben Eshmade and here from 2018 we present our three-part series, Ode to Joystick. Sit back and enter a parallel universe of video games music, from the chunky world of 8-bit tunes to the full studio cinematic scores that define the modern immersive gaming experience. So, do you remember the first time you clunked in a cartridge, slid in a cassette, inserted a, five and a quarter or 3.5 inch disc, pushed in a sparkling data CD, double-clicked an icon or simply slid up a button to load or start your favourite computer game? Computer or video games have been with us since the 70s, from their money-gulping origins in the amusement arcade to the invasion of the home computer and the eating up of our pocket money. What accompanied them, soundtracked them, was the most incredible inventive machine melodies, reveling in the limited channels and sounds. Pioneering composers and coders created tunes so annoying, so brilliant, so catchy, so avant-garde, they practically invented their own genre of music. On the first of three editions, we attempt a rough history of video games music and try to unravel an 8-bit tune with a professor, a doctor and one of the most legendary composers for the Commodore 64. We play some frankly incredible hand-coded melodies that deserve to be remembered or discovered anew. So let's press play on this pod and dial up Dr Kenny McAlpine. I started by asking why we seem to love that 8-bit sound.
0: Part of it, I think, is that it's fun. The sound is just loaded with positive association of childhood and, and carefree play. It's like musical popping candy. And when you hear it, even the harder four on the floor stuff, you can't help but smile. You know, there's a, a an old Steve Martin routine in which he advocates giving out banjos in place of welfare checks. And Chip Tune 8-Bit has... Something of that quality about it. It's a really fun, upbeat sound that you just can't help but warm to. Even more importantly, the, the limitations of 8 bit music can be very liberating. Modern computers and software have given us access to music tools that, you know, even 15 years ago were confined to the likes of Abbey Road. They've also brought a form of creative block, the, the tyranny of choice. Creative procrastination often kicks in when I sit down in front of my PC with a copy of Cubase or Logic. The temptation is to explore the multitude of presets and options just in case that perfect sound that might make a track is hiding in the next menu alone. You know, it's just like Devo sang back in the 80s. Freedom of choice is what you got. Freedom from choice is what you want. Now, that's what chiptune can provide. It's an antidote to the overproduced sound of a lot of contemporary music. You've got no option but to go right back to the very basics and address the fundamentals that make music engaging and entertaining. There's nowhere for half-baked ideas or weak arrangements to hide. It's electronic music in its rawest, most fundamental state. It's all about simple ideas expressed well.
2: Next, I climb aboard my pixelated rocket, making it through bad traffic to crash land in Nottingham at the National Video Game Arcade, to speak to Professor James Newman, one of its researchers and curators. I join him on a journey around the arcade and the history of video game music.
1: So we are in the National Video Game Arcade, which is based in Nottingham. We opened uh, three, almost three years ago now. We are currently actually sitting in a room full of, sort of 1980s home computers, 8-bit era home computers, very much the sort of things I grew up with, uh, in fact. We have a Commodore 64, which is really one of the first... Uh, first serious computers I ever owned. we used to thinking about computer and video games as being a very modern, new medium, but they do have a you know they do have a, a history that dates back many decades. And really, one of the things we wanted to do is celebrate that. So to think about those old and new platforms and systems. Think about the linkages between the old and the new. Um, so really this is a building that's dedicated to celebrating that culture and drawing attention to the the artistry, the craft and the technology that goes into making games. It's really as much about people who make games as it is about you know, the systems mm. and technologies themselves. And That's one of the things we really wanted to... I really wanted to showcase the idea that people make games, people play games.
2: This podcast is focusing on computer game music mm. or game music. Interested to get your take on that. I mean, it's obviously a very loaded uh, phrase, and also in- encompasses the idea of uh, sound design.
1: Yes, video game music has an interesting history. I guess I think for a lot of for a lot of people, it will automatically mean a particular period in time, and it's become, I guess, to some extent associated with the 1980s and that sort of 8-bit computer chip tune, as it's sometimes called, aesthetic. Um, so quite lo-fi, characterised by sort of limited polyphony So, lots, and lots of techniques, compositional techniques to try and make it sound like you have more notes playing at once, which have come to define a really a really sort of characteristic sound of game music. So I suppose for many people, that's become what video game music is. But video game music has evolved and changed, and there's been... Uh, shifts over time. Mm. Both as technologies have changed, the ways in which uh, game music has produced, the, the the people who produce it have uh, you know have shifted over time. Partly as you know, it's not just a simple question of technology changing or evolving, but it's certainly the case that you know contemporary computing or video game console systems allow the playback of infinitely more complex music mm. than perhaps those in the room we're sitting in now, surrounded by you know eight eight bit machines. Video game music isn't really a single thing; it's a sort of evolving. Story, which is which is a combination of technology, craft, artistry, different producers and composers finding ways of, of, of exploiting the sort of tools that they have at their disposal. So before we get to
2: 8-bit, let's go back, probably, I would have thought, at least one step.
1: Yes, yeah, so I suppose I suppose we go right back to the earliest days of, of, of computer games. We're thinking really of so. <laughs> As with lots of things in video games, the very first video game is a sort of much-debated topic, but lots of people talk about space war. So this was a game created um, in the computer lab at MIT over in the States. Um, it's really important to remember there was no sound, um, just graphics. And actually the first home video game console, the Magnavox Odyssey, again, no sound at all. Not just limited sound, absolutely no sound. Right. And even graphically quite, quite limited, the Odyssey i uh, say 1972 was able to draw a couple of dots on the screen. Um, the rest of the graphics were created by overlaying sort of mylar sheets or sort of transparent sheets, or it's literally sticking them onto the television screen. And the box that the Odyssey came in had dice and pencils and pieces really? of paper. Yeah. Wow. Um, but no sound. So it, which I suppose, if you're simulating space games, is quite authentic. But, um, <laughs> so, really, sound, you know, sound comes a little bit later, but it is important to remember that they were a sort of visual and interactive medium before they were a sort of sonic medium. Uh, but once we get into the arcade, I suppose game music in the arcade performs a number of different functions. So it is definitely catchy melodies that are associated with the game and sound effects that help you, uh, help you understand what's happening. You collect a coin, it makes a, mm. makes a coin jangling sound just like a real coin doesn't. So there's definitely a kind of signposting of gameplay. But one of the things that sound does in the arcade is it just shouts out, put your 10p or your dollar whatever it might be, 10 cents, into the, into the slot. So you get mm. these things called attract sequences. So one of the really neat things about arcades is that cacophony of every machine okay. shouting at you, saying, no, play me, play me. So these little sort of repetitive jingles that are oh, accompanied wow. with little animation sequences. Yeah, so you know, lots of games will have these kind of sequences that will effectively show you how to play them and they sort of showcase themselves. And those jingles and that sort, of, that, that, that sort of riot of sound is very much the sound of walking into an arcade. It's quite a confusing wow. space mm. <laughs> initially. Uh, and then you stand next to the machine, and that's, you become absorbed and get sort of, you know, caught up in the flow of playing. And that's then the only sound you can hear. And somehow you manage to sort of here you know, filter out these 30 other machines all playing in different times and keys. And... <laughs> Jerry, video games are the latest craze to sweep the country and most of the world too. Millions of people are addicted to hours of gazing at electronic images on game screens and arcades. <laughs> games are
0: it is a cacophony of sounds from a symphony of electronics. If you're filling your time capsules these days, don't forget a bit of Frogger or Mousetrap or Grand Champion or Pac-Man or Ms.
1: Pac-Man. The, the tendency in the, I guess, the 80s, the, one of the things you wanted was to bring the arcade into your home. Mm. Um, so to have a version of Space Invaders or Pac-Man or you know, whatever they, they sort of game, the game of notes was. So to convert those games, isn't this a simple question? I mean, if you, you, know, you can lug it into your living room, but for most people that's not a serious proposition. So you start to see the emergence of games. Consoles... Things like the Atari VCS or 2600, as it's sometimes known, and the sort of staple of many of the sort of you know, the early years of that of, of systems like that were arcade conversions. So this is trying to take the essence of the gameplay, the essence of the graphics, and the essence of the sound, and turning that into re- reprogramming, recoding uh, that arcade original for this new system. Really importantly, though, that new system has different processing capabilities different graphics capabilities and different sound capabilities so those games don't necessarily sound the same Um, and something like the Atari VCS incredibly popular extraordinarily influential console that really it didn't invent but it certainly popularized the idea of the game platform so that's a you know a system that has sort of removable cartridges so rather than you know having a machine that just plays space invaders you have a machine that can play any game and you keep you, know, you buy a new cartridge and you, you know, swap it out and you've got a whole new effectively a whole new system Challenging sound chip to work with so it's great for sort of experimental music it's less good for playing a jingle from pac-man for example so you there's a number of different techniques you can use there you can either just really walk towards that and you can have incredibly atonal music that even today you listen to <laughs> and it slightly sets your teeth on edge oh so the atari choice is great at making engine noises and raspy explosions it's not it's not a composer's dream necessarily So there's various techniques that composers start to use to sort of overcome sometimes the limitations of those systems. But yeah, that notion of converting the game, you very much have the idea that the game console is a sort of, you know, is a facsimile of mm-hmm. of the arcade, your know, original, which is which has the, you yeah, know, that's the that's the that's the that's the version, that's what it's supposed to sound like. Mm-hmm. And then the, um, yeah, the 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 console conversion is a some sometimes, you know, inferior, but certainly a facsimile. Are
3: you keeping up with the Commodore? Because the Commodore is keeping up with
1: The world's number one-selling home computer is now in a family pack, the Commodore 64, plus data cassette and joystick, four software programs including Introduction to Basic, a teach-yourself program for the whole family. The Commodore 64 Family Pack, a value of $700 for just $499. Are
3: you giving up with the Commodore? Because the Commodore is giving up with you.
1: What you start to see is the emergence of maybe slightly more capable gaming systems, either consoles or home computers, which have slightly more sophisticated sound chips, perhaps, and what you really start to find is composers, musicians, starting to be drawn to writing game music, and writing game music that really suits the abilities of the systems. I think perhaps perhaps the best example of this is the Commodore 64, a 1980s home computer with a sound chip inside it called the SID chip, the Sound Interface Device. Which is essentially, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a synth. It just doesn't have a wooden box and a bunch of keys. <laughs> so you have to program it by programming hexadecimal. Um, what you start to see is that composers start to write pieces of music that really suit the capabilities that the SID chip, in this case, has. So they're writing for the chip, almost writing like writing for the silicon, rather than taking a piece of music and then trying to convert it and translate it into, you know, three channels of square wave.
2: At this point, I think we should speak to one of the most prolific games composers of the 80s who mainly wrote for the Commodore 64 and its SID chip, Rob Hubbard. He drew influences from everywhere, from classical music to the pop charts, from Scott Joplin to Cabaret Voltaire. He even sampled himself. But the music was very much his own as he mutated the melodies, coding and composing everything by hand.
3: Go! Go! go,
4: go, 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 go. I got into computers in the in the early 80s. I was very much into synths and stuff, so I thought, well, i better get one of these machines. started learning about the uh, machine and programming. I was commissioned to write a game for a company, and just as I was finishing the game, the company went out of business. Typical thing that happened back in the uh, very early 80s, and then um, people, they thought the game was absolute rubbish, but they thought music was good. And so I thought, well, maybe there's a niche for me to exploit just doing the music because a lot of the music was pretty ropey at the time. So I then set about doing some kind of demo tapes and stuff. And I went through all the magazines and got all the addresses and telephone numbers of the publishers and software developers. And it took about six months before I got a reply. And then to cut a long story short, eventually I did get a job. People heard that and uh, then I got a couple more jobs and then everything just kind of snowballed, really. game called Thing on a Spring, a game called Monty on the Run, which people kind of really took notice of those those two games. And then there was a game called Commando, Crazy Comets. People really liked those tunes as well. And that kind of basically set the snowball in motion. And it was quite unique to, um, for a musician, be paying like 50 quid a gig or something to suddenly, you know, start earning, you know, three or 400 quid. For doing a game, doing the music. I, You know, from a very traditional background, so I, you know, I used score paper and I used to sketch out ideas. Mainly, one of the reasons I sketched them out was because sometimes I, I wanted to get it down on paper as soon as I could, so I, I didn't actually forget the idea that I... And secondly, having, having something sketched out on paper, I needed that as a reference because of the way that I had to code it. So it was all hexadecimal notation. 8-bit computers can hold a data size of 8 bits, which is gives you a value of 0 to 255. So uh, a crotchet would be a 7, and then a quaver would be a 3, and then a minim would be a 15 value. And then all the notes were basically hexadecimal numbers It wasn't as bad as what you think it is, you know. But you, you get into the swing of things. I mean, I mean the most, it would, it would generally take um, a couple of days, to, maybe three days to do a project because there was, you know, maybe a, a, a main tune and then a high score tune and maybe a couple of other little um, stingers, as it were, and then a bunch of maybe 20 sound effects or something like that. It was something that had to be done. I mean, to be honest, it was always a bit of a pain in the ass, you know because I was always much more interested in music side of things. Sometimes you got lucky with sound effects and you would stumble across a sound that was actually quite reasonable, you know. Um, other times it was just trying to knuckle down and do the best you could. Is I really wasn't aware of a lot of things that were going on. In some respects, I I was that busy trying to get those, you know, all my work done, because I didn't I didn't know if the work was going to dry up or the games business was going to fold. So I had the mindset that well, I've got to just keep going with this and run with it um, for as long as it's going to last, because I thought it was maybe just a fad, a fashion thing, which would be taken over by something else. I'd always, you know, had a broad musical background and I've always spent a lot of time listening to music and I think that you absorb things. So for me, it was always about trying to come up with a melody and a bass line first. And the melody was basically something that you more or less could be sung or made sense musically. So, you know, I've got various sequences and um, phrases, uh, answer phrases common tone modulations and all that kind of stuff. And you know, the other thing that I did, I was conscious that somebody would load these games and the tune would just, if it was short and just had a couple of like little A section and a B section, it was gonna drive people nuts. So I deliberately set out to do more complex kind of tunes that had like A, B, C, D, and an E and an F section. Some developed over time. Some of these things ended up being ten minutes long, not just like a three-minute tune. The uh, electronic one that stands up is a game called uh, Sanction. Everybody seems to love that. I didn't like it when I first did it, but it grew on us, which was a little strange. But that, that one seems to stand up. Well, I mean, people used to say, I only bought the game because of your music. And I used to say, oh yeah, right, you know, next, next. I never believed any of that stuff, you know. I mean, I've had such a lot of other you know nice comments and people saying things that it's you know it's validated a lot of what I did and um, you know, makes me a lot more proud of what I did.
2: Let's pause here and return to Kenny McAlpine and ask about the different musical approaches between European and Japanese composers.
0: It's a good question, but I'm not sure that you can really directly compare the Japanese and the UK composers of that period because their mindsets and their approach to composition were really quite different. You know, it's, it's maybe a bit like trying to compare the very best of punk with the very best of prog rock. They're both fascinating, but in very different ways. You know, Typically in, in the UK, the approach was to create complexity by pushing beyond the constraints of the hardware. And composers like Rob Hubbard and and Fred Gray developed an array of different compositional techniques and, crucially, bespoke machine code to do just that. Multiplex different musical lines fitting the notes of one musical part into the spaces left by the rests of another, for example. They would arpeggiate or toggle chords switching rapidly between the different notes of the chord on one single channel to create harmonic depth while still leaving room in the composition to have melody, bass and percussion happening round about it. Koji Kondo, on the other hand, the, the composer of Super Mario Brothers on the, the, the NES, took the opposite approach. You know, Rather than push the hardware beyond its limits, he wrote music that would make a feature of its strengths. In particular, he stripped the harmony back to its fundamentals using shell voicings, a technique that's got more in common with the jazz piano music of Bill Evans and Art Tatum than it does with the music of Rob Hubbard. And he focused on getting the most out of just two or three channels. Instead of trying to create harmonic richness, he looked to the rhythm to create complexity, introducing sophisticated syncopations and polyrhythms similar to those of, of Debussy. Now on top of that, Kondo was one of the first video game composers to really explore the idea that video game music might work functionally like film music, tightly tying in the action to the gameplay, which is a far from trivial task when you throw player interaction into the mix and you can't predict in advance what music cues might be needed and when. Kondo's approach to light, open orchestration and and rhythmic complexity was really as much a function of the technical requirements of getting the the music to work effectively with the gameplay as it was any sense of personal musical style. Now it's, it's no less innovative or musically interesting, it's just different.
2: We've got a Nintendo um, Entertainment System in front of us. Yeah. Where, where does that come into the, the sort of the timeline?
1: Yeah, so we're talking. So in, in, in the UK and in Europe, this is so mid eighties, 1987. It was actually released slightly earlier in Japan and the US in 1985. So the the means of connection, obviously the NES Nintendo Entertainment System as a as a television connected console doesn't have any speakers built into it. So all the audio and video relies on the television display which means that there isn't really a kind of definitive reference point for what the thing sounded like it rather depends on you know what kind of television you have your nes plugged into so if you have a television with a tiny little mono mono speaker in the front you get a particular quality of sound if you have it plugged into a wonderful stereo sound system then uh, it sounds altogether different Um, typically for consoles of this sort of age would be radio frequency so they would be you know it's the same connection that you have to connect your television to the you know to the aerial to pick up to pick mm. up tv so it's obviously one of the biggest selling consoles it's you know tens of millions of devices have been have been sold worldwide and it's home to you know, games like Super Mario Brothers and The Legend of Zelda. So it's, it's, it's really the beginning of, you know, Nintendo's journey into the into the home. But ultimately, you're still talking about a device which is capable of making four noises at once, really, <laughs> in, its, in its barest sense. There's also a, a you know, very sort of, a quite a lo-fi sample playback channel as well. So it's something like the Mario soundtrack, for example, which is, you know, widely known, highly influential soundtrack. It's worth remembering as well that those four channels, those two, you know, the melody, counter-melody, the bass line, the rhythm that's not just the music that's got to create all the sound effects as well yeah so one of the things you notice about playing so a game like mario is every time you jump there's a jumping sound to tell you that you've jumped that cuts out the music so it's, that cuts out in fact on, on the on mario Bros, it cuts out the main melody so every time you press jump the lead line for the for the for the music disappears because all of the sound duties music and sound effects all have to be produced by those you know that those four channels that sound chip working is working very hard And what you certainly see is that those musical motifs are absolutely at the heart of, of defining what nintendoness is it 's very difficult to imagine what Super Mario Brothers would be like without hearing that soundtrack in your head it 's so much a part of, you know, of what that game of what that game is and how we 've come to understand it and actually, I think there 's certainly stories of uh, Koji Kondo, who 's the, 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 the composer of uh, one of Nintendo's most prolific composers but certainly works on you know, the, uh, the, the Early Mario series. Having written a piece of music and then seeing the gameplay and realising, oh, this doesn't work at all, and then having to go back and sort of tailor the music uh, because the tempo is wrong. So I think, yeah, the, the motifs but even the style of composition is something you know distinctively Nintendo that is mm. absolutely a part of their sort of heritage and they still you know they still reference it in their games today just as they reference the sort of 8-bit graphics in their current generation of you know Switch Mario Odyssey games the soundtrack is referenced as well it's a key part of what Nintendo-ness and Mario-ness is When you talk to musicians, they weren't necessarily expecting their work to be played in concert halls in 20 yeah. years' time. Um, Which they are. Which they are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so whether they were necessarily thinking the music would have the longevity or would be repurposed and reused in this in these ways, possibly not. No. Yeah, you know, musicians were bringing craft and artistry, and very aware that they were they were producing pieces of music that were in many ways, much more sophisticated than they needed to be. Yeah. Um, and you would certainly see in, in the sort of magazine culture of the 80s and 90s, composers would be interviewed and talked about in the same ways as game designers would be as well. So there was definitely, there was always an interest in game music. There was always a fandom mm-hmm. um, that surrounded this, um, you know, their, their work. You see it at the time and you see it in reminiscences subsequently. Many is the player who purchased a game for the soundtrack alone, had really no intention of ever playing the game, and no particular interest in playing really? the game. But would follow those composers' work. So, oh, wow. so you would, you know, the way of finding out what Martin Galway was producing or David Whittaker was producing was to buy that game. Okay. I've certainly bought, you know, games where I, my only reason for buying them was that I'd read a review it said it had a soundtrack by a composer I really liked, and my first reaction was to put the game in and record it onto my cassette (laughs) recorder so I could listen to it on my Walkman. I then took the cassette and probably put it on the shelf and never played the game again. So I've no idea what the game is actually like to this day.
2: Behind you in a cabinet, I can see, yes. <laughs> um, well, all kinds of technology. But the one that I wanted to center on was the Game Boy, because really? we've been talking about Nintendo, and one thing we can't get away from is Tetris. Yes, it
1: and. Uh, Possibly the biggest earworm of, of, ga- of the games world. So the Game Boy has some some really interesting qualities as well. So it, it, it's related to the to the Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES that we were uh, that we that we can see across the way that connects to a television. Obviously, the Game Boy is a handheld system, has a built-in speaker, and also has a headphone jack as well. Um, so it's much more of a sort of defined platform. You can, mm. you, it's, it's easier to say what a Game Boy sounds like because the sound comes out of its speaker. It's harder to say what it sounds like though, because there's so many different iterations of the Game Boy, and they all sound a bit different. So this version here is the original, so-called DMG1. Um, this is the first edition, the big sort of grey house brick-sized thing. Considered by many people to have the best quality sound, it's got a really sort of rich, deep bass, comparatively low noise. There were lots of revisions and iterations of this system, and it sort of reminds you that the rather than you know a CD playing back on a CD player. What we have here is a, is a device where the, the music is played back in real time on a chip. It's being generated real time, you know, and it, it effectively a synthesizer built in. So the combination of that, the way that synthesizer's been designed, all the internal wiring, the speaker, all of those things directly affect the way, you know, the music's going to sound. It's code that's being played back in real time on a, uh, you know, on a, on a sound chip.
2: Um, where are we in regards to the sort of uh, the progression of technology and how that affected the uh, the games uh, yeah. the, the the music
1: So we're in in the Hall of Inputs, as we call it. So this is a a gallery space dedicated to different input devices. Uh, What we're looking at here is PlayStation, Sony PlayStation. And the game in particular we're thinking about is something called VibRibbum. So PlayStation mid-90s console, one of the distinctive features of the PlayStation is it has a CD-ROM drive. Mm. Um, So one of the things that allows you to do, from a a musician's point of view, is to start to play back standard CD audio. So this opens up a whole raft of different possibilities, rather than the music being sort of programmed and played back on a sound chip. So you're not really beholden on the abilities of the system to play back a certain number of pitches or different types of waveforms or the particular sound of the filter in that that system. So what that means is you start to get a couple of things. One is you get licensed music. So one of the launch titles for the PlayStation in the UK was a game called Wipeout. Which had a soundtrack that was. Sort what of kind annoying. of game was that? Story, right? So it's a kind of futuristic racing game. So you have sort of hover cars. PlayStation was very much about 3D. So it was a game where you sort of raced into the screen. And rather than a car, you had a futuristic sort of hovering vehicle. The game really sort of picked up on the that sort of zeitgeist of uh, popular music and club culture from the from the sort of early to mid 90s. So the game graphics or the sort of iconography was designed by the Designers Republic, whose work you'd probably have seen on a, you know, an Orb album. And the soundtrack was licensed music that included tracks from the Chemical Brothers or Orbital. Wow. So you start to see then this real connection between video gaming and club culture. And you get PlayStations to be in you know, super clubs like Cream and Ministry of Sound. So you start to associate gaming, I wouldn't say it necessarily became chic, but it certainly became more cool than it was. And yeah, that was certainly yeah. something Sony were very much trying to do. Part of the uh, you know, the reason they could do that is by having the CD-ROM drive. So rather than having cartridges or cassettes, we were talking about the CD-ROM drive allows data to load, you know, the game data to load, mm. but also then a portion of that CD-ROM is effectively... a Know, is an audio cd and so with that different kinds of game making opportunities come come along so vib ribbon created by um a musician japanese musician um and game developer masaya matsura so vib takes advantage of the fact that once you've loaded the sort of game data from the playstation cd-rom not only could you play audio from the CD portion of that disc, you could actually take that disc out and replace it with your own CD. Yeah. So what this game does, um, you could put any CD into this game, and it starts to generate a landscape based on the sort of audio analysis of the of the CD as it's playing. So each one of the obstacles that you have to leap over is generated by you know analyzing the you know the right. the waveform of the uh, of the CD. So your music is not only playing but it's generating the level at the same time as well. Mm. So this is something you just couldn't do before, you know, without without the, you know, that CD-ROM and CD-playback technology. Start. Yeah, so there's a, there's a sort of class of game, which, like Vibribbon, where music is absolutely central, where, you know, the music is helping generate the level. There's another kind of game, which, where you're basically playing a sort of simplified musical instrument and your performance is the thing which is you know which is being kind of measured and, and turned into a game so things like guitar hero yeah you have a you know a, a small replica guitar becomes the controller so you have a little sort of you know, a device that simulates strumming you have five i think it is four or five you know, buttons on the you know the fretboard of the guitar and you see this sort of style of gameplay that starts to happen. It's a little bit like a piano roll from a um, mm. from a sequence, or maybe like a sort of tracker dropping down. The you know, notes are dropping down the screen. And you have to press these buttons, you know, in time as they uh, as they appear on the screen. It's, yeah, the harder levels get impossibly hard. <laughs> and there was lots of lots of sort of speculation about whether people who are really really good at Guitar Hero are going to be really really good guitarists. Yeah, I was wondering that. Yeah, Something I think they, I'm not sure how transferable a skill it is because the thing. So you get, you know, there's a level of dexterity certainly, but um, I think what you do is you get really really good at Guitar Hero. But it does make the idea of music and performance. Mm-hmm. It brings that into the home in a way that perhaps if you presented somebody with a guitar and said, right, now learn that, that might not be as appealing. So this idea of sort of gamifying, there's certainly um, certainly a kind of interesting development there that we see. And that moves from being guitars to entire, you know, a series like Rock Band that has uh, uh, a yeah, rhythm guitar, a lead guitar, a bass guitar, a, a, a you know, drum kit, even. So we start to see a range of different, a range of different instruments, to the point where it actually becomes almost like band rehearsal, just to set the game up. We need a physically large space to set up all of your, uh, all of your, you know, all of your virtual instruments. And such was the, you know, the popularity of those types of games that. Um, you know, stores opened up behind them, so really, you know, things like SingStar for singing, but um, you know, Rock Band and Guitar Hero, there were special editions that you could buy for your favourite band. But actually, inside them is effectively a as you know, a music store. So if you want other tracks, you can pay a small or large amount of money depending on the uh, depending on the arrangement. Download some more tracks and and, and play and play along with them. Mm. So 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 sort of significant a market was that. I think the first time the Beatles catalogue was made available yeah. out, out, you know, outside of CD, but in, in, in sort of digital formats in that way, was was in the Beatles Rock Band. So you have got your beautiful replica Hofner bass, and you could listen to the um, listen to that uh, you know listen to that music. In fact, some of the some of the work that went into separating out some of those channels of the original Beatles recordings as well is absolutely stunning.
3: Get back, get back, get back, back to where you want to go.
2: This subject is big. Yeah. I mean, the more you dig into it, the more you find. So probably jumping a few steps, but... Where are we now? We haven't really touched on the, the PC. There's the mobile phone, obviously. Yeah, and then there's the latest generation of all the consoles.
1: Yeah, so there's a, there's a, there's a large span of platforms. I guess one of the things that's sort of distinctive about this, this moment is the range of, different, range of different systems, the range of different places where we might, uh, we might encounter games and play them. Yeah, so the current generation of, sort of PCs and consoles um, Technologically, we sort of, to some extent, have sort of moved beyond the that period in the 80s and 90s where each sound chip offered something maybe that the previous one didn't or had a distinctive sound. You yeah, know, the ability to replay, you know, Many, many hundreds of channels from a from a sound chip, or mm. to you know, directly stream multi-channel audio from you know, from disc, is a fairly sort of common feature across different different console platforms and and PC as well. So what we started to see is things like surround sounds becoming more yeah. prominent. So comparatively recently, it's often possible to play back surround sound in what we call cutscenes. So the kind of the movie-style intermissions between mm. you know between gameplay, the ability to play back you know surround sound in real time, so to have positional audio, so audio that's moving around you that you can use for, you know, for, for cues, um, thing happening behind you over your shoulder. So, so certainly things like that in the sort of console and PC space are really interesting developments. And I guess VR is one of the really interesting places and spaces to think about sound design. I think it's typical to think about VR as being a visual medium, but actually it's the sound that often is used to direct players' attentions. Mm. So in VR, what do, you, what do you do if you want a player to look over their shoulder? You have a big sign that says, "Look over your shoulder." now it's a bit intrusive. So things like having audio or music cues mm. that, are, that, that, that are positioned in three-dimensional space, So interestingly, that, yeah, VR is much a sort of audio environment and it's exciting in terms of sound as it is in terms of visuals and quite what happens in vr that's still being kind of improvised mm. and made up so does sound travel with you as you move your head around does it does it stay located in a particular place and you move your head relative to it all of those kind of techniques are still being are still being improvised still but it's certainly a really exciting time to be a game musician the tools are incredibly flexible i guess the the sort of flip side of that is there's almost too much choice yes. <laughs> and so i think to some extent we might see sort of harking back to a maybe a simpler time, yeah. <laughs> which might explain some of, the, some of the popularity still of older gaming systems and sound. Mm-hmm. So while we're thinking, you know, in 2018, it's tempting to think about what comes next because that's generally the way gaming works. It's yeah. all about next generation and, you know, technological sophistication and things improving. What's interesting is to see the revisiting of 8-bit aesthetic and the sort of, To some extent, the kind of permanence of that, that Mm. it's never really gone away. There's been this huge fan culture surrounding that music. But what we're starting to see, I guess, is a sort of more mainstreaming of that. Mm. Um, Popular music really obviously being inflected by game music aesthetics, whether that's sort of compositional styles or the sound of, you know, yeah. of old gaming hardware. So I think to some extent we're yeah, we're thinking about how game music might develop, but saying some of, some of the ways it develops by looking back at its own history. This stuff is absolutely part of the sort of lexicon of modern electronic music. And the emulations of those Devices in software, or the ripping out of chips from home computers and putting them inside modular you know, pieces of modular equipment—that mm. stuff is absolutely the kind of centre of you know, contemporary electronic music making practice. So I think that's why there's a lot of fondness for things like the, you know, the Commodore sixty-four or the Amiga—is you're thinking about you know, synthesis and sampling, and that going hand in hand with you know, sort of music making. And you definitely see that—that you know, that still continues to uh, inflect you know, popular. Yeah, you know, electronic dance music in particular. And to some extent, I mean, you know, in the building, that's one of the things we're interested in doing is sort of making those connections. It's not just about sort of nostalgia that we think about the Commodore 64. We think about the Commodore 64 because the Commodore 64 is still a music-making device that's used you know, yeah. today.
2: So I thought at this point, it would be fun to ask Kenny's help to pick apart an 8-bit tune and show how incredible they really were. He's chosen Rob Hubbard's Commando. Now, Commando's
0: soundtrack is interesting on lots of different levels not least because of the way that the soundtrack came about. So picture the scene. A young Rob Hubbard, all hair and moustache, sitting behind his trusty Casio MT32 keyboard in his Newcastle studio, takes a phone call from the UK software firm Elite. Can you get on a train to Birmingham as soon as possible, they ask him. We need you to do all the sound for our game which needs to ship in a week. Now he paused only to pocket a handful of floppy disks and to tuck his keyboard under his arm and set off for Birmingham on the train, arriving just as the office was closing up for the day. So, they all headed straight to the pub. They had a few beers and set the world to rights. Eventually, at about 10 o'clock, they headed back to the office to talk about the game. They showed Rob the arcade version and then they promptly disappeared leaving Rob alone locked in the office overnight to write the music. Now that arcade soundtrack is a short, military-style march, a no-nonsense melody harmonised in block chords with a flurry of synthesised snare rolls beneath. After that initial theme is introduced, it's transposed up a minor third and then repeated before dropping out completely, leaving a series of snare drum rudiments playing before the whole lot loops again from the beginning. not, I think, by any means a bad piece of arcade music, but then neither is it particularly sophisticated or particularly memorable. There's very little variety in the short loop and the voicing of the block chord harmony creates parallel movement as the tune progresses. Now, Parallel motion happens when each note of a chord rises or falls by the same musical interval and it's one of those things that rookie composers are encouraged to avoid like the plague when they first start to study four-part harmony. Parallel thirds or parallel sixths are okay in moderation but parallel fifths are a definite no-no. Now, of course, it's a rule that Bach ignored with some regularity and Debussy's piano work is littered with the stuff But away from such considered and experienced hands, Parallel Motion creates a really awkward, heavy-handed sort of musical progression. Rob just simply hated the sound of Parallel Motion in the arcade soundtrack. And so the first thing he did was to ditch it. He kept the basic melody from the arcade version. Then he took the basic chord progression of the original and turned it into the short hook that really defines the rest of the piece. Now I think you can hear straight away how different his score is from the original. It's not just a conversion, it's a reinterpretation, one that's designed to make the most of the underlying musical material by using everything that the Sid chip had to offer. Breaking that down then, on one channel he combines a bass line with filtered noise to synthesise a snare drum, slotting in the percussion on the backbeats when there are rests in the bass. <laughs> He uses ring modulation synthesis and hard sync synthesis, both features that were unique to the SID hardware on the first two channels to create that powerful rhythmic opening. And he uses arpeggiation, rapidly alternating between the melody note and the note an octave higher on the same channel to create a a kind of pulsing pitch effect that adds both harmonic depth and a sense of sound in motion. It's a very densely packed couple of bars, and so it's interesting to find a crotch at rest at the end of the second and fourth bars in voice two. Rob rarely left any musical space unused. After the main theme plays through, Rob takes the hook through a series of modulations, always moving in thirds to keep the momentum going. As he works through the changes, he plays with the melodies and counter melodies, adding variations and a a driving descending chromatic line that plays against the rhythm of the melody. After that, he brings in a full bore solo before bringing back in little details and musical callbacks to earlier in the piece. In total, around four minutes of driving electro rock. By the time he finished up, it was getting on for eight o'clock in the morning. Before everyone came back in, Rob loaded the music on every one of the C64s that were dotted around the office and turned each one up as loud as he could. Everybody at Elite arrived to a cacophony of commando. And Rob, well, he got on his train and went home.
2: A teleport now back to the video games arcade for a final thought from James on the legacy of video games music.
1: Now, this is really about celebrating the fact that even you know, even music that originated in the eighties and nineties still has a life today. It still has a meaning today mm. as well. Uh, people are still listening to it. but people are you know reworking it as well. Those compositions are inspiring new composers today. Those sound design techniques are inspiring you know mm. new uh, you know sound designers and synthesists today. Um, and those systems and platforms are as meaningful today as they were actually in many ways more meaningful and more usable composers in the 1980s were having to program in hexadecimal with nothing more than you know just streams of... You know, the screen looks like the Matrix when they show you what they were doing. And 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 really celebrating the fact that this is a this is a really rich, creative, mm. dynamic art form. We have really avant-garde sound design um, mm. that's happening in in a lot of these kind of, you know, e- even in those kind of early, early soundtracks, we see incredible you know, use of things like ring modulation and, you know, and, and oscillator sync and the points of inspiration. You know, it's tempting to think of game music as being sort of cheapy, lippy blocky yeah. sort of stuff. You hear... A composer like Rob Hubbard, for example, talking about the inspiration of Philip Glass's Koinus Katsi*, and his yeah, you know, that those minimalist composition techniques, um, and you listen to that piece of music in a completely different way. Um, and actually, I think for a lot of people, then Philip Glass becomes opened up, and you think, okay, so if Rob Hubbard was using that, let's go and listen to Koinus Katsi*, and you realise. Yeah, there's a there's a whole world of you know there's a whole world of composition that perhaps you weren't you, know, you weren't aware of. So I think game music is often a sort of gateway to to mm. thinking about other kinds of composition, other forms of sound design.
2: My thanks to James Newman, Kenny McAlpine and Rob Hubbard for speaking to me and the National Video Game Arcade for existing and welcoming us into its building. Also, a quick plug for Kenny's book, Bits and Pieces, a history of chiptunes, which is available now. So, I hope you enjoyed this first trip, an incredible voyage into the 8-bit universe of sound. In the next edition, we meet a range of composers from around the world who have terraformed new planets and star systems with their music, including Winifred Phillips... It is- it was a slow exploding bomb. The explosion kept getting bigger in my head until it was just what I was obsessed with. And Sawney.
1: It's important
2: that you get into the gameplay while you're composing to just see how it feels. You're always trying to think, OK, you don't want to kind of have something too obvious or boring. Joining the bleeps and bloops in this podcast, we heard music from the Where Is My Heart soundtrack by Alexandro Coronas with in-house audio design from De Fabric of Denmark. I'm Ben Eshmade. Thanks for listening to this archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. Here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and themed series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on ACAST, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out. For now, game over.